All right. So I want to kind of piggyback off the study from last week. This this week, we're looking at when trouble comes, Psalms 35 and 36. And I want to begin by directing your attention back to Psalm 34 for just a minute. So would you look back at Psalm 34 to verse 19? I'm going to make reference to this verse a couple of times, but it's a good reminder for us. David writes in Psalm 34, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And so we talked about that last week and we talked about it over and over again because it's something that we want to remind ourselves that just as Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, right? But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so the afflictions of the righteous aren't going to be few, they're going to be many. This is going to be a, a difficult path that, we, that we're on, but we can't forget the second part of this verse because we could have a tendency in the midst of trouble to focus on only on the first part. Okay, there's going to be many afflictions, right? But it says, but the Lord delivers him out of all. Just like Jesus said, hey, you're going to, in this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so I want to focus on that. We talked about last week that God will deliver you either through the affliction or by the affliction. That in every affliction that we deal with, God is going to either deliver us through it so that we can kind of go on and have another affliction down the road, or he's going to deliver us by it. Whatever that final affliction, apart from the rapture of the church, that affliction that takes our life, will still be delivered. So God always delivers believers. He has delivered you and I over and over again. And eventually our death doesn't stop that deliverance. It's actually the ultimate deliverance. That death actually takes us into the presence of the Lord. So I want to remind ourselves in the midst of these two Psalms that kind of have a lot of uh, difficulty and challenging things in there as David is dealing with situations that are uncomfortable. So let's jump into Psalm 35, if you would. The Lord, the avenger of his people, a psalm of David. So we're going to begin by looking at verses 1 and 2 here. Verse 1, plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. And so I, I like this imagery here. David is in a difficult situation. He's in trouble. He's having affliction. And that was something that was very common in David's life. And as you look at the scriptures, it's common in every believer's life. Now, the, the specific difficulties and challenges may vary from person to person, but they're all there. Some type of trouble and difficulty. And then after, you know, the, the New Testament canon was closed, that's still the story of believers all throughout history that we're going to have these difficult issues. And, and what D David is dealing with here are, are individuals. You know, so sometimes our tribulations and difficulties can be, take the form of, of disease, or it can take the form of a natural disaster. It can take the form of an economic downturn or those things. But what David is dealing with here are people coming against him. And so we're going to have that as well. We're going to have people come against us. And so David is asking for God's help uh, against David's enemies. And, and so this is an interesting thing uh, here that, that some people don't like these sort of psalms. This is what's called an imprecatory psalm where David's like, Lord, take out those against me. And I want to kind of develop that theme a little bit later, but I just want to say that I think this is a very reasonable prayer. If someone were coming against you falsely, someone has like a frivolous lawsuit against you or any of those kind of things, I think it is perfectly suitable for you to pray and say, Lord, let the truth be revealed. Lord, please deliver me from this situation. I think that that is a right thing. And I think that David is doing the right thing. And I, and I love the imagery that David is using for God. He's essentially asking God to put on his armor. God, would you put on your armor, right? This is what he's saying. Hey, God, would you take hold of your shield and your buckler? Would you stand up from, uh, against them? Would you stand up for my help? So I love that. And let's not forget 
that it says in the scriptures that God is a man of war, okay? That, that God is a warrior. And so uh, one verse I want to kind of bring in with this in kind of David's situation and kind of think about the difficulties that we have in our own life is First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, which say this, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting most of your cares upon him because he cares for you. No, that's not what it says. It says casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. So David has cares. Now we know that David didn't have first Peter, but we do. Whatever cares we have, whatever situations, difficulties of whatever nature they are, cast them upon the Lord. Cast them upon the Lord. Now, the common affliction for believers or the kind of the common, I would say, um, I don't know, situation or how we do things is it's said that we cast our cares upon the Lord, but then that we reel them back in. You know, cast them, reel them back, cast them, reel them back. And no, this casting here speaks of leaving them there, letting the Lord work it out, letting the Lord figure it out. So bringing them before him and then trusting him in that. Now, we want to remind ourselves as we think about that verse that the Lord has a much different timetable than we do. The Lord has a much different way of dealing things with what we do. So we, we cast our cares upon him. And if he hasn't figured it out by sundown, then all of a sudden, well, I guess I got to figure this out. And so trusting that he's going to take the time to figure that out. Verse three, continue with this imagery of, of God putting on his armor. It says, also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. And so, so he's, he's like, Lord, okay, can you get out your spear? Can you, can you stop them? Those who are pursuing me, those who are going after me. Notice they're the ones going after David. They're the ones pursuing David. And then David asks for comfort there at the end of verse three. He says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. David is seeking encouragement from the Lord. Now, what does it mean to be discouraged? It means that to lose courage, have your courage taken away from you. And we know that whenever our courage is taken away, we're not able to do the things that we're called to do. And so he's asking to be encouraged. Lord, would you encourage me? And would you say to my soul, would you speak to my inner being, I am your salvation? And that word salvation there, you know, we so often think about it in terms of salvation from hell. And that's not really what it's talking about here. It's actually talking about deliverance or welfare. So say to my soul that you are my deliverer. And so, um, you know, as we look at this, we remind ourselves that we too need assurance when we face our enemies. We need that assurance. We need the Lord's assurance. And so what happens, I think, uh, for so often is that we seek to kind of, we're we're feeling discouraged. We're feeling enemies around us. And so we kind of self-medicate, if you will, right? It's like, well, I have all these problems. Maybe if I watched seven hours of Netflix, that my life would be better. Or maybe if I did this, or maybe if I did that, or maybe if I sought this in a person or whatever. And we're looking kind of all around for that encouragement and then it, it fails to encourage us. We need to go to the Lord. And so we do have very real enemies. The scripture tells us that the world, the flesh, and the devil are our enemies. They're our adversaries. And so we need encouragement from the Lord. And, and so when we find ourselves in this place where we're saying, say to my soul, Lord, I am your salvation. Where should we go? I believe we should go to the word of God. So if we want God to speak to us, the primary way he speaks to us is through his word. His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so what happens if you and I come to God's word in the midst of our discouragement, as we sit down with God's word and say, God, would you just speak to me through your word? Then what's going to happen is he's going to assure us through his word that he is our salvation. 
You know, he's going to assure us that he loves us. He's going to assure us that he has a purpose and a plan. He's going to assure us that he's still got it under control. He's going to assure us that all our days are written for us before there were any of them. And now we begin to think rightly. We begin to see things accurately. All right, let's move on to verses four through eight. It says, let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause, they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. Let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. Okay, so really it's very clear that David wants the Lord to defeat those who wrongfully seek his life. So notice he mentions that a couple of times in verses 7. He says, you know, for without cause they've hidden uh, their net for me in a pit. Without, they have dug without cause for my life. So there's nothing that David has done that's causing these people to come after him. So we don't know why they're coming after him. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's this, that, or the other. We're not sure. But David wants the Lord to defeat them. Um, and, and so I, I think it's important to kind of consider this, to think about these sort of people. And the person that kind of came to my mind from the scripture was Haman. You remember Haman for the book of Esther, right? He, he hated Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't give him the respect he thought he deserved. Mordecai's pride, I'm sorry, Haman's pride was struck. And so what did Haman do? He's like, well, I'm going to just kill all the Jews. I'm going to get rid of them all. And I'm going to, you know, make this gallows and I'm going to hang Mordecai on it. And you guys know how the story went. Haman was defeated and he got hung on that very gallows. And so you see this throughout the Proverbs. So please understand that what David is praying here is not contrary to God. The scriptures say over and over, hey, if you put out a net to trap somebody unrighteously, you're going to fall in that same net. If you go after these things, that's what's going to happen to you. And so David is just asking the Lord to move in his life in a way that that Lord has already said it's okay to, to do. So it's interesting, you know, again, I, I've read commentators who disagree with these and like, well, this is not really loving your enemies and this kind of stuff. And I, I think it's, we have to consider kind of the situation because Jesus said, love your enemies, but also Jesus is going to come back in Revelation 19 and destroy those who are unrepentant. And so it's, we have to kind of understand the situation. And so I think, you know, if you were in a war, I think you would pray against your enemy combatants. If you were in a war, you would say, Lord, let us defeat these guys, you know, protect the guys in my platoon. Let's do this. So, so we have to understand that David is in a situation where his life is in danger and he's asking the Lord to deliver him from this. And I think that you and I, if we were in a combat situation like that, we would feel much the same. See, Spurgeon put it this way. He said, viewing sinners as men, we love them and seek their good. But regarding them as enemies of God, we cannot think of them with anything but detestation and a loyal desire for the confusion of their devices. No loyal subject can wish well to rebels. Squeamish sentimentality may object to the strong language here used, but in their hearts, all good men wish confusion to mischief makers. I think that's, such, that's just so good. And it's, fun, it's really easy, I think, sometimes for commentators who sit in nice, comfy offices to typing on their laptops to say, we should do this and we should do that. And they're not the ones kind of on the front lines. 
And so I think the situations change when you're in that difficult situation like David was. So David was a mighty warrior in service of the Lord. And so David was a man who fought. David was used to that. But we also notice in this situation, David is not saying, hey, I'm going to destroy my enemies. He's saying, Lord, would you intervene? Would you take care of this situation? And again, as I mentioned earlier, the Lord Jesus is a man of war coming back in Revelation 19, defeating all of those armies that are gathered against him. Let's move on to verses nine and 10. He says, my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. And so David is looking forward to his deliverance, right? He's looking forward to when the Lord intervenes. And so he says, you know what's going to happen on that day? My soul is going to be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. That's what's going to happen. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Now, it's interesting, too, because we, you know, the, the scripture says rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. But when we're rejoicing always, it doesn't always look like rejoicing. I mean, when Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, that doesn't look like rejoicing. Right. And so so there's going to be situations that are so overwhelming in the midst of it. It's going to be very, very hard. But it says in Hebrews about Jesus that it says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So even in the midst of that Garden of Gethsemane, what Jesus was wrestling through, he was on some level looking forward to that finished work so that you and I could be saved. So there's going to be that that mixture there. But sometimes, you know, what's going to be apparent is the sorrow. And other times the rejoicing. And so for you and I, 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 want to, I think to take from verses 9 and 10 is to look forward to our deliverance. To look forward to that day. To steady ourselves. To be solid in the Lord and say, okay, I'm going to have difficulty in this world. I'm going to have hardships. And I'm going to have kind of momentary breaks from that. But the fact of the matter, as long as I'm living on this earth, there is the potentiality for difficulty. This is just a reality. I'm going to get older. My body's not going to work as well as it used to. You know, I'm, I'm going to lose in this world. But I know the day is coming for my ultimate deliverance. And I know that for every loved one that I have that is a believer, their day of deliverance is coming too. And so looking forward to that deliverance, looking forward to that fact that the end is going to be better than the beginning, looking forward to that will help us through those valley times. Verses 11 through 16 it says, fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. But in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Okay, and so we see again that, or we see something a little bit different, that this is very personal for David. That this people who are coming against him are people that he had cared about. They're people that he had ministered to. They're people that he had, you know, he was sad when they were sick. He visited them. He helped them and they turned against, him, against David. Notice that in verse 12, they reward me evil for good. I've done nothing but good for these people. 
and they've done all these bad things to me. And so that's a reality in, in life. That's a reality that, that sometimes you're going to invest in people's lives and they're going to turn against you. And then you realize when that happens, hey, you're in good company. <laughs> that's what they did the prophets. The prophets wanted nothing for the best, but the best for the people. Telling them the truth and kind of warning them. And what did they get for that? They were ostracized. You know, they were, they were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were martyred. And so that's just a part of life. Paul experienced this. And I would encourage you when you're feeling kind of just down and discouraged to read 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a really good book to remind you of like, okay, this is not some strange thing that's happening to me. This is, this is how life is. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, this is what Paul wrote. He says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I love that. The Corinthian church was a mess. <laughs> the Corinthian church constantly caused uh, Paul problems. They criticized him. They mocked him. They denied his apostleship, all of that. And then Paul says, you know what, guys? I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He's, he says, I'm willing to be used up for you guys. I'm willing to spend my life for you. And then this is what he says. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. Though the more that Paul loved the Corinthians, the less they loved him in return. So that, that's a situation that we find ourselves if we're going to walk in the footsteps of Paul, right? The footsteps of other believers. This is a situation. I think there's an application for this because as I look at this, I can look at verses 11 through 16 and say, these jerks. How could they treat my boy David that way? That's just not right. But then as I turn this around, I realize that I often treat the Lord this way, right? The Lord has done nothing but good for me. The Lord can't do anything other than good. The, the Lord is always good. Everything that he does is right. He's never done anything but good for me. Yet how often do I turn against him? And so when, when things are not the way that I want them to be, then I turn against the Lord. And how could you? And don't you know what you're doing? And I don't like how this is and all of this stuff. And, and there's actually a very simple remedy, a very simple remedy to not become like verses 11 through 16. It's actually to believe that Romans 8, 28 is true. Is actually just to believe it's true. Because Paul says, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. It's one thing to memorize it. It's one thing to say you believe it. It's another thing to actually just live it out and believe it. That no matter what happens, Romans 8, 28. And then what happens is we won't turn against the Lord in that way. And so it's kind of thinking about that, thinking about kind of the promise of Romans 8, 28. You know, sometimes we might live life this way. You know, it's like a person who has $10 million in the bank, but they don't really believe they have $10 million in the bank. And so they go around always like a poor person who's poor impoverished and like, I'm, I'm just lacking and I just don't have enough and I can't. Well, don't you have 10 million? Well, I know that's what it says in the statement, but I've really never seen that $10 million. And so I just don't really believe that it's there. And so I, I think it's better for me just to scrimp and to cut coupons and to kind of live in this way, wearing this same jeans that I've had since 92, you know, just to, to really hold on to it. And then, but he's like, but you have 10 million in the bank. And so for us, I mean, what kind of the Romans 8:28 is a much better promise than 10 million dollars because it says that God is working every single thing that happens in your life for your ultimate good. So what is that? That's the reality. And so for us, when we do that, then that will guard our hearts against becoming enemies of the Lord. 
That will guard our hearts against going against him if we can actually believe that. All right, verse 17, David says, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from destructions, my precious life from the lions. And so the reality is David felt like the Lord was taking too long. David felt like he needed deliverance already. And that's how it's going to be for us in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship. It's going to just seem like it's taking too long. But there's an old saying I heard, you know, in my early days as a believer that God has one eye on the thermostat and the other eye on his watch. (laughs) You know, that, that God knows how long this needs to last. God knows how long this difficulty needs to, to last to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So David in verse 17, he's crying out for deliverance. And again, what I just want to remind you of in verse 17 is that this is the common plea of believers in the old covenant and the new covenant. Believers in the old covenant and the new covenant have always been crying out in the midst of difficulty and that's okay, but cry out to the Lord. You know, I, we, we kind of race through the life of Joseph. We're not told, but imagine the years that, that Joseph is there in Egypt wondering if God's going to deliver him, wondering if God is doing something with his suffering. We know the end of the story. So we say, yeah, Joseph, but in the midst of it, he didn't know how it was going to end. And so this is the common plea of believers. Again, I'll remind you that verse from the beginning, Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So the Lord will deliver each and every believer to heaven. Please remember that each and every believer, the Lord will deliver to heaven. I don't know if you, you purchase much stuff online. I, I purchase more stuff online than I should. Okay. And, and so when you purchase something online, certain companies, what will happen is they'll give you a tracking number. And then as you look on there and it'll say shipping label created, prepared for shipment. That's what it'll say. And then you're just kind of waiting around till it actually gets shipped out. But I want you to know that the moment you believed, this is what happened. The moment you believed in Christ, the moment you were born again, your shipping label was created and you're being prepared for shipment. That's what's going to happen. That, that's the reality. And so sometimes we might say, well, I'm ready to go already. You know, is is it time for me to be picked up? Is it time for this angel to FedEx me to heaven? Right? Let's do this. But please understand, your shipping label has been created. You you are being right now prepared for shipment. But God wants to put you in that, that place that he wants for you. He wants to conform you into the image of his son before he delivers you home. And so that's the reality of our situation. Verse 18 he says, I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. So David promises to publicly proclaim God's deliverance. Lord, I'm going to publicly proclaim your deliverance when you do it. And so I think there's a great application for verse 18 for us. And it's simply this, in a way that fits your personality and your situation, I think it's, it's good to make a habit of publicly thanking and praising God. Now, th- this is not one size fits all. You know, Pastor Chuck talks about being in Bible college and that there was this woman that was there on the, on the, would always come on the bus and she was always just like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And like Pastor Chuck would be, he wasn't Pastor Chuck back then. He was just Chuck. He would be so embarrassed of this lady. And just because how she did it, it was very abrasive. (laughs) So I'm not saying go out and do that. But in a way that fits your personality, a way that fits your situation, just find habitual ways of publicly thinking and praising God. And, and it's, it gives honor to him, and then it changes our hearts as well. Verse 19, uh, let them not rejoice over me who are, um, who are wrongfully my enemies. Let them 
nor let them wink with their eye who hate me without a cause, for they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. And they opened their mouth against me and said, Aha, our eyes have seen it. This you have seen, O Lord. Do not keep silence. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, ah, so we would have it. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves among, uh, uh, against me. So here we see David is again seeking deliverance. Okay, But notice again, all throughout, he's trusting the Lord to intervene. He's ta- not taking matters into his, his own hands. And we see this with things like he says in verse 22. He says, this you have seen, O Lord. And so please remind yourself. We need to remind ourselves that though we bring situations before the Lord, it's not like it's the first time it's coming to his attention. Okay, when you and I bring something before the Lord, there's something that God does as we pray to him, and I can't explain it, but we're not informing him. You and I have never informed God about anything. He's omniscient. He's always known everything. And so it's important for us to remind ourselves of that. Okay, God has seen this and we want him to work. But then in verse 24, notice what he says, vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. He doesn't say vindicate me because I'm awesome, because I've never done anything wrong ever at all. He says, Lord, because you're righteous, because you set things right, would you vindicate me? All right, verses 27 and 28 says, let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in his prosperity, or who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. And so here, you know, he's, he's, he's asking believers, you know, to shout for joy, to be glad that everybody who's on his side, who's ever on David's righteous side, let them magnify the Lord and have a pleasure in him. And so it's just a, a, another reminder of the importance of praising the Lord. You know, he says, my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and your praise all the day long. So the more that you and I can focus on the Lord the more that we can talk about him and kind of what he's doing and who he is and his personality and all of those things, then what's, what's awesome is we'll just become kind of supernaturally, naturally self-forgetful. And the more self-forgetful that we are, the better off we're going to be. The, the more fulfilled we're going to be in him. And, and so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, joy and happiness and, and security and all those things, you can never find them directly. They're always found indirectly. As we direct ourselves to the Lord, then we're going to indirectly receive these things. But as we go after those things directly, we're never going to be happy. Because if we go after those things directly, if we go after peace and security and joy and happiness directly, then we're not seeking the Lord. And so inevitably, we're going to seek in other places. But if we just seek the Lord himself, then these other things will come with. Now, let's move into Psalm 36. Man's wickedness and God's perfections 
to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. And so I think that's a good reminder, you know, that David was the servant of the Lord. That's, that's a, a moniker that we want to always use for ourselves, that we're the Lord's servants, that um, he's the boss always, and we're the servant. Uh, that, that we are the ones simply here to do his will for his good pleasure. And then actually, as we do that, that's where we find fulfillment. All right, verse one, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And so this is what David had observed about the wicked. This is where it all starts. There's no fear of God before his eyes. So this is where it all begins. Wickedness proliferates when where people do not fear God. And we've seen this quite often. We've seen, you know, cities like Portland and other places where there's just no fear of God for years and years and years. And so there's no fear of authority of any sort. And it just becomes a place where you can't prosper, where you can't live an abundant life because of the wickedness there. And so we, read, we understand this, the fear of the Lord and its importance in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You can have no true knowledge, no true understanding of, of the, the important things in life if you don't fear God. It just can't happen. You could be super smart. You can make a lot of money and you miss the whole point. I mean, Jesus says that you could actually, you know, he's using some hyperbole, but he says, you know, you can, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? What Jesus is saying is you can gain the whole world without knowing God. That, that you can have all of this world system, all the power, all the popularity, all the authority, and miss the whole points. And, and so it's important for us to consider this, that the, the most important thing, the fundamental thing, the central issue is fearing God. I'm going to fear God. And so, so the, the, part of the fear of God is fear of punishment for wrongdoing. Right? It's, it's this idea that if I step out of line and continue disobedience to God— then God is going to bring the hammer. God is going to do that. And so that keeps me in line. That should keep us in line. And so this is why, though, the lack of the fear of God, this is why violence will continue to increase as our nation increasingly refuses to fear the Lord. It's consequences. You sow the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. So as people wring their hands and wonder, why are, why are people so violent? And why do they hate each other? And why? Because there's no fear of God in the land. Because as, as people refuse to acknowledge that there's a creator above them. They just do whatever they want. The demonic has a field day with that. And so it's important for us to understand that the fear of God is where it begins. Verses two, two through four says, so this is talking about the wicked, says he, for he flatters himself with his own eyes. And when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Okay, so what we have in verses 2 through 4 here are really characteristics of the wicked. And so they'd be important for us, you know, to take some time, maybe on our own, to kind of really consider these things. And maybe what are kind of, what are some of the things in here that we might fall into? Right. Even as believers that we might slip into. And the first thing we see, he flatters himself in his own eyes. In other words, the, the, the wicked person who doesn't fear God, they're just puffed up. Right. They talk about themselves all the time and kind of what they've done and their accomplishments and all that kind of stuff. They point to their name on the back of their jersey and that kind of vibe. 
So self-flattery, instead of building others up, instead of encouraging others, instead of seeing how they're doing, it's all about the self. Got to pump myself up. And, and it's interesting. It, it shows a lack there, right? Because if you have to flatter yourself, you're, you're, there's kind of some kind of thing in there that says, well, I'm just, I'm not as good as I should be or this. I need to let everybody know how awesome I am. Continues on. He says when he finds his iniquity and when he hates. And so, um, so he's, he's flatters himself about the wrong that he does. And think about how much music, modern music, and maybe it's always been this way, is a glorification of wrongdoing. Look at all this stuff and look at these people that I've killed and look at all these women I've slept with and look at all this and this and look at all this. It's doing wickedness and saying that it's great. Verse three, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. In other words, evil speaking is a characteristic of the wicked. They speak evil, they speak lies. And then it's very interesting, the second part of verse three, he has ceased to be wise and to do good. In other words, there's an active turning away from truth. There's an active turning away from wisdom. There's an act of saying, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to do good. And whenever, you know, we as believers kind of put the, the Bible on a shelf, that's what we're doing. We're turning away from wisdom. We're turning away from doing good. Verse four, he devises wickedness on his bed. What does this mean? It means that when he goes to sleep at night, before he goes to sleep, he just thinks about some new wicked thing he can do. Just kind of takes that time to think about that. So it's this idea of, I just, I love evil so much that I'm going to just think about it all the time. And then notice he sets himself in a way that is not good. He chooses a bad path. He goes in a bad direction. He actively pursues it and he does not abhor evil. In other words, he doesn't go away from evil. He doesn't hate evil. He loves it, flirts with it, enjoys it, gives himself a taste for evil. And it's very interesting that, that though we're born sinners, you know, when we're, we're young, there is certain things that there's a natural aversion to. There's certain things that just kind of say, well, that's just not right. That's not right. But we can actually train ourselves to say, no, that's okay. Or even that's good. And so this we see the, the person, but it, it, what did it all begin with? It began with no fear of God before their eyes. So, it, so if we want to rectify this, whatever aspects of these we find in our own lives is we need to get back to fearing God. Verses five and six, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. Now, it's possible that as David wrote this psalm, he was on a mountaintop. You know, as it, that he's, he's looking out and he's kind of thinking about God and he's, he's using things that he sees in nature to call attention to God's attributes, which makes perfect sense with Romans chapter one, right? That Romans one, that, that God's glory is revealed through the created order. But what I want you to focus on here is these, these attributes, mercy, faithfulness, righteousness, and, and his judgments are all expansive. That's the idea. Okay, so when it says that his mercy is in the heavens, it doesn't mean that we can't reach it. It's this idea of that his mercy is expansive as the heavens. Okay, that his faithfulness is so tall, so great, it reaches up to the clouds. That his righteousness is as tall as a great mountain. His judgments are like the deep oceans. That's the idea. God is not impoverished. His mercy, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his judgments are abundant. That's the idea. Now, this word mercy here, though, it's not the best translation. Actually, it's better translated loving kindness. 
that faithful loving kindness. So God's faithful loving kindness is great. It's vast. His, his faithfulness is great. His righteousness is great. Now, what does it mean for his righteousness to be great? Uh, righteousness really speaks of moral perfection. So it means that God's conduct is blameless. His integrity is without reproach. And so it's like the mighty mountains. And then I want to focus in finally on this judgments are a great deep. Judgments really speak of his decisions. In other words, Think about the ocean and how deep the ocean is and how little of it we've explored, even with all our technology. And what David is telling us by the Holy Spirit is that God's judgments are past finding out. You think about that word unfathomable. It means, you know, a fathom speaks of the ocean. So unfathomable means you can't get to the end of it. You can't get to the bottom of it. That's what it means. And and this is really kind of where the rubber meets the road for us as believers because we probably kind of tell ourselves something like this. If I could just understand kind of what God's doing in this situation, then I can accept it. And God says, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing in this situation, but I still want you to accept it. <laughs> and so his, his judgments are the great deep. And so I'm going to give you a few verses that tie into this. Job chapter 9, verse 10. This is what Job said. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. It's just reality. Damien Kyle, and I listened to it years ago, he says, it's going to be hard to be a Christian if you can't handle mystery. <laughs> you know, that you have to, there, there's things you can't find out. God does great things past finding out. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 30 tells us, there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. So if you think about God as kind of a lawyer presenting a case, he's undefeated. No one's ever brought a case against him. And the Lord was like, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. No, there's no wisdom, counsel, or understanding against the Lord. And then the Lord says this in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And God doesn't apologize for that. He just says, this is how it is. And here's the deal. I've told you that I love you. I told you that I have what's best for you. I told you that I'm working it for your good. I I told you this. I've shown you this through Christ on the cross. So here's the deal. How about you just fear me and let's go. Verse seven. He says, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Okay. So because God's loving kindness is so precious, that word precious, you know, it means valuable there, is that men and women are fully justified in trusting God to shelter them. That's what it means here. It says, so basically, because God's loving kindness, because his faithful love is so great, so precious, so valuable, that we are fully justified by trusting him fully justified by putting ourselves under the shadow of his wings. Now, what's interesting is during Jesus's ministry, Jesus wanted to do this very thing. He wanted to shelter people under his wings, but they weren't willing because they didn't trust him. And so I want to read for you what Jesus, it was you know, the week before that, the week before he's crucified, he cried this over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so that's what God wants to do. God says, I I love you. I just want you to come under the shelter of my wings. Just trust me here. You're fully justified. But most of mankind says, no. 
I'm going to find shelter in money. I'm going to find shelter in pleasure. I'm going to find shelter in power. I'm going to find shelter in authority, all these things. And then the Lord says, that's not going to work. And, and so the Lord Jesus wants us to trust him. Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That when you serve the Lord, when you come to him, that he is going to reward you for that. Verse 8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. So it's pretty awesome here. And, and there's a lot that we could take away from verse 8 and be a great verse to kind of correlate with other verses in the scriptures. But I just want to bring out two things here. I believe that verse 8 really has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is on earth. The near fulfillment is the, the fact that you and I can experience ab abundant life in Christ. Jesus says, I've come to give them life and that more abundantly. And, and you can read Christian history. You can look at your own life when you were, you know, when, whenever you and I are, are walking in the spirit and we can see, yeah, there's an abundant life. Things are coming. Things are happening. God is working. It's, it's moving. So, so there's that near fulfillment, but there's also that far fulfillment in heaven. Now, we don't know how far a fulfillment it is, but it's this idea, or not this idea, this truth that you and I are going to experience a life in God's direct presence. We only experience him indirectly now. We don't experience the fullness of him because we couldn't handle it. We can't take it. We can't see him and live. But the day is coming where verse 8 is going to be fulfilled in God's very house. That there's a room set aside your name on there so that you can be welcomed into God's direct presence. And it's going to be super exciting, a place free of sin, of sorrow and pain. Verse nine says, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. And so I love this, with you is the fountain of life, that, that life comes from God, right? That, that life didn't happen accidentally through some series of random events. No, 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 life comes from God, and then the life he gives is abundant. Notice it doesn't say, for with you is the stagnant little pond of life. No, it says, for with you is the fountain of life. Okay? That, that you know, people have looked for the fountain of youth forever. It says, you don't need the fountain of youth. You need the fountain of life. So the idea is that it continually springs up that God is infinite and he is life in himself. And so there's an infinite supply of life that he's able to give to people. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful picture, this fountain imagery of just springing up. And then I love the end of verse nine there, in your light, we see light. In other words, we can only see things rightly in the light that God gives. You can only see things rightly in the light that God gives. Until, he, until we receive that light, until we put ourselves in the position to, to receive his light, we can't see things as they actually are. Now, it's interesting is, is I'm um, sneaking up on 50. Then what's happened is my, my near vision is getting worse and worse. And I found an interesting thing that's happened, though, is I'm sitting inside under artificial light. I can't read without readers. But if I go that same distance and read out in the sun, for some reason, I can see better. The natural light is something different. And, and so I kind of think about that in relation. We have all these artificial lights. Like all of these individuals who say, well, this is truth and this is true and this is truth, but we need the natural light. We need God's light. We need to, to, 
him to reveal things to us so that we can see things accurately. All right, verse 10. It says, oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. So David prays for God's continued loving kindness and his continued righteousness. And so this is where his hope is to be found. He doesn't say, Lord, my hope is in me and kind of me getting it done. And no, no, his hope is in the Lord. Lord, in your loving kindness, in your righteousness. And so that's where our hope is to be found, in God's steadfastness, not in our own, in God's supplies, in God's resources, not in our own. Verse 11, let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. And so David is asking for help again. And, and you know, I would say just the application for verse 11 is real simple. Let us continually ask God for help. Let us continually ask God for help. There's sometimes this idea that if we're more mature, we're more independent. And that's false. God doesn't want us actually to be more independent. He wants us to be more dependent. <laughs> he wants us to depend on him more and more and more and more and more. And you see that perfectly in the Lord, life of the Lord Jesus. Greatest person who ever lived, only sinless person to ever live. And what did he say? He said, I only do those things that the Father tells me to do. Completely dependent upon the Father. Verse 12, let... Uh, there the workers of iniquity have fallen. There they have been cast down and are not able to rise. And so David is assured that the enemies of God have been defeated. And we too can be confident that the defeat is assured for all those who continue in opposition to the Lord. That that's the reality. That's the truth. That's what we have to hold on to. That the end is assured. It's not in doubt. God's not kind of wondering how this whole thing is going to turn out. But that he is going to defeat all his enemies. All right, we'll stop there for today and Lord willing, pick up in Psalm 37 next week. But as I close, I want to share uh, one more verse and a couple of ideas. And that's from Psalm chapter five, verse three, where David said this, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. And that's kind of the closing exhortation I want to give to you and to me that when trouble comes, look up. When trouble comes, Cast your eyes upon the Lord. Look to the mountain from whence comes your help. Because what happens for us when trouble comes, we can fixate on the horizontal. And how I can fix this and how I can do this and if only this thing and carry the one and all of that stuff. But what we need to do is we need to have a more vertical perspective. Now, it's not that we ignore our problems. I'm not saying that at all. It's, but we see our problems in proper perspective as we keep our eyes on the Lord. So that may the Lord empower us to seek him to look up when trouble comes.